0: entitled, Michael's Mission, Revealing the Essential Secrets of Human Nature, 12 Lectures Translated by Johanna Kallis. This is Lecture 2, given in Dornach, on the 22nd of November, 1919. I spoke yesterday about the error which has entered into our present cultural life, while having as yet been correctly comprehended by only a few individuals. From what I said, you will have sensed that in drawing attention to this error, we have arrived at a very important point regarding the views expressed by spiritual science. For a fruitful development of humanity's spiritual and cultural life, it will be essential for us to gain clarity in this matter. I drew your attention to cultural phenomena such as Milton's title Paradise Lost and Klopstock's title Messias, which have arisen out of general popular thinking in recent centuries. I also pointed out the dangers with which human soul life is confronted through the artistic and cultural excellence that imbues such works if people do not see beyond this in order to reach a proper concept of God and thus also of Christ rather than being led astray by a conception of spiritual life based only on the number two. By perceiving only a duality of good on the one hand and evil on the other, people have fallen into the error of attributing all evil to what we have come to call the Luciferic and the Aramonic. They have failed to notice the two universal elements have become conflated. As a result, it has come about that the Luciferic element was pushed to the other side, to the side of the good, so that in worshipping the Divine and in recognizing the Divine, we spoke of God while mingling that name with the Luciferic element. That is why it has become so difficult in our time to reach a clear concept of the Christ impulse within human and world evolution. Through the culture of centuries, the recognition of this duality has led us to speak on the one hand of the soul and on the other of the body, the bodily nature. And we have lost the connection between the images which tell us what is soul-spiritual and those which tell us what is bodily. Nowadays, when we, and especially our academic psychology, speak of our thinking and will, of our soul nature and feeling, we are merely playing with the sounds made by words. We do not attain any real inner, content-filled idea of the element of soul. And On the other hand, we speak about what is matter devoid of any spirit, about something soullessly Materialistic. We, as it were, knock upon this externally hard, calcified, soulless matter and are unable to build any bridges across to the element of soul. What is spiritual has everywhere fallen apart and become two elements, and what is bodily is at the same time something spiritual. We cannot reach a bridge between what is bodily and what is spiritual by merely theorizing. And because we are unable to achieve this, our whole way of thinking scientifically has acquired this characteristic of a dichotomy between what is of the body and what is of the spirit or soul. Or we could put it like this, on the one hand the various belief systems Have ended up pointing to a spiritual element without being capable of working out how this spiritual element enters into what is bodily and physical, how it works creatively upon what is bodily and physical. And on the other hand, a soulless knowledge, a soulless view of nature, views the body in a way which renders it incapable of seeing through the bodily processes and finding beyond these a spiritual and soul element at work. Observing from this point of view how present-day science has evolved during the 19th and on into the 20th century, one has to say, everything we see here reveals itself as a consequence of what we have just been describing. By adding up everything that can be derived from the various aspects we have been discussing here, we shall be able to reach a full comprehension of the misapprehension which today hides what is right. We speak today about a human being as though he were a homogeneous entity, without taking any account of whether we mean the soul element or the bodily element. We speak today of the soul element as of a unitary entity, and we speak of the bodily element as of a unitary entity. And yet everything we have been discussing will have shown you that there is above all in the human being a great contrast between what goes into making up his head and, without just now going into all the details, what he has within him apart from his head bracket, the right-hand part of the drawing on page 18 is drawn, plate 3, close bracket. When asking about how the human being has evolved, our questions must be quite different with reference to his head from the questions to be asked with reference to the rest of his bodily development. When we observe the formation of the human head, now entirely in its bodily nature, with regard to what it contains for perception by means of the senses and also for thinking and imagining, we have to look far back into the cosmic evolution of the human being. We here have to say, what is now expressed in the formation of the human head has taken a long time to be developed and transformed. It has been developing during the time of old Saturn during the time of old sun, during the time of old moon, and now even during the time of earth evolution. But this is not the case with regard to the other parts of the body. It would be an utter mistake to look for a uniform history of the development of the human being as a whole. So we say, bracket, drawing continues plate 3, close bracket, the formation of the head points backward to previous planetary stages of Earth's evolution, the moon stage, the sun stage, the Saturn stage. The final result now arrived at, by the development of the human head, reaches far back into the past. But in order to add the other parts of the human being, we cannot return to the Saturn stage, for here we have to say, what the human being has within him apart from his head can be traced back at most insofar as the formation of the chest is concerned to the planetary moon stage. Bracket, the vertical dividing line is drawn. Close bracket. And as far as the limbs are concerned, they only arrive during the formation of Earth. We only observe the human being correctly if we make a comparison as follows. Please note that a comparison is meant. Hypothetically, it would be very easy to imagine, on account of some organic situation or other in the cosmos, on account of some adaptation or other, connected with the conditions for growth, how the human being then adds new members. But you would not be tracing the human being as a whole right back to the earlier evolution, you would be saying that one must go back to a certain point where this member or that member was added. We are tempted to think like this, because purely in the matter of external size, the other parts of the human being together are larger than the head. But the truth is that the formation of the head reaches further back while the other parts represent later developments. Indeed, when speaking of a connection between the human being and the world of animals in the matter of evolution, one can only say that what exists in the human head points back to a former animal evolution. The human head is a transformed animal development, a very much transformed animal shape. Externally, of course, under entirely different physical conditions, the human being had an animal shape before any animals even existed. The animals came into existence later, in addition to human beings. And what was then added to the head as the other parts of the organism only became added to the head at the same time as the development of the animals took place. So this has nothing to do with being descended from animals. And we really do have to say the following. What at first seems to be the noblest element in the human being, his head, points back to an animal nature. It was in this respect that the human being earlier had a kind of animal form. And whatever else we bear in us came into being in parallel with the evolution of the animals as an organic addition and cosmic development of the head. Now, in a certain sense, our head has become our organ of thinking. In other words, our organ of thinking is that in us which has been inherited from the animals. But, of course, it is a rather special kind of inheritance. Looking at a human head today, it is seen anatomically not exactly something which points back toward an animal shape. But when you look more closely, you will see, when you rightly interpret the form of the organs in the head, that they are indeed transformed organs of animal nature, very thoroughly metamorphosed animal forms. In examining this, one must also mention that this transformation of the human head from an animal nature... Came about because a backward evolution has already commenced in the head. That which was full of life in earlier stages of evolution is, in the human head, already in decline. In the human head, it is a backward evolution. I once said that if, as a human being, we were to consist solely of a head, we would never be capable of living. We would be constantly in a process of dying, because organically the forces of the head, rather than being life forces, are a process of dying. That which is in our head is constantly being re-enlivened by the rest of our organism. It is owing to the life in the rest of our organism that our head participates in the overall life of our organism. If the head were able to surrender itself entirely to those forces for which it is organized, the forces of sensory perception and thinking and imagining, then it would be in a permanent process of dying. The head tends constantly toward death. It is constantly in need of being enlivened. When we think and when we perceive with our senses, What goes on in our head and in our nervous system, in its links with our sensory organs, is not a life process connected with growth. For if it were, we would be capable only of sleep. We would sink into deep sleep and be entirely incapable of clear thinking. Thinking and sensory perception can only take place in our head because death constantly passes through it because there is a permanent backward evolution, because the organic processes are constantly being withdrawn. Those who want to explain thinking and sensory perception in a materialistic manner, on the basis of brain processes, have no idea what takes place in the head. They believe that the processes going on there can be compared with organic processes of growth and the like but this is not the case. What takes place in sensory perception and in thinking involves processes of dying, processes of wear and tear, processes of destruction. What is organic and material in its character first has to be worn away and destroyed, and then, above the organic process of destruction, the process of thinking rises up. People today presume that such things can be comprehended in an external way. They think they are perceiving with their senses, but they remain entirely oblivious of what is going on in parallel with this within their organism. Through the processes I have described in my book uh, titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, they can gradually gain an understanding of what really goes on in the soul processes of sensory perception and thinking. When the soul has developed sufficiently it can occupy itself with thinking and sensory perception while at the same time perceiving what is going on in the brain. The perception there is not of growth processes but of reduction processes which constantly require renewal from the rest of the organism. Here we have the disappointing concomitant of a true understanding of what goes on in the activity of our head. When thinking and perceiving with his senses, a clairvoyant person has no enjoyment of a burgeoning in the head's organic processes. Instead, he has to come to terms with a process which is destructive. He has to become acquainted with the fact that a materialist assumes that processes take place in the head, which are in fact impossible during thinking or sensory perception. Materialism presumes the very opposite of what actually occurs. In the case of the human head we are thus concerned with a development which, while going beyond the animal nature, is actually a backward development, a process of degradation. It is the rest of our organism which is progressing. But we must not assume that this other part of the human organism plays no part in the soul-spiritual processes and our experience of them. Not only does the rest of the organism constantly send blood up into the head, what also rises up in the blood are those soul-spiritual thought forms from which the world is woven and from which our own organism is woven. These soul-spiritual thought forms are not yet perceived by human beings in their normal state of awareness. But we have now entered an age when it will be necessary for us to begin to become aware of what rises up out of our own being into the forms of thought. As you know, we are asleep, not only between falling asleep and waking up. With a part of our being, we remain asleep all day long we are only properly awake in our thinking in our imagining and in the way we perceive with our senses we dream in so far as our life of feeling is concerned and we are fast asleep in the life of our will as far as our will is concerned we are aware only of the ideas we have but not at all of how the will functions As far as our consciousness is concerned, what our will actually does is as unconscious as our life of sleep between falling asleep and waking up again. If we ask after the paths through which knowledge about what is truly divine can reach the human being, then it is not right to point to the path through the head, the path through sensory perception or thinking. The only path to which we can point is that which goes through the other parts of our organism. The great mystery is the fact that our head developed through a long developmental sequence, that what is the rest of our organism developed after that, and that what we can feel to be divine in us must speak to us through the rest of our organism and not through our head. It is important to be clear about the fact that it was only the Luciferic beings who initially spoke to us through our head. What we can say is that in addition to our head, the rest of our organism was created so that through it the gods are able to speak to us. The Bible does not begin with the sentence, And God sent a beam of light to the human being so that he might become a living soul. What it says is that God breathed the living breath into him and he became a living soul. Here we have the correct realization that the human being received the divine impulse through a deed not connected with the head. This enables you to understand that initially the divine impulse could only reach the human being through a kind of unconscious clairvoyance or at least through an understanding of what was given through an unconscious clairvoyance. As we know from other considerations, when you look at the Old Testament of our Bible, you will discover it to be an outcome of an unconscious clairvoyance. Those who gave their assistance in the creation of the Old Testament also knew this. I cannot just now describe to you how the Old Testament came into being, but I do want to point out how we have considered such things many times. You will find everywhere among the teachers of the ancient Hebrew people the awareness that their God spoke to them not through direct sensory perceptions, not through ordinary thinking, not through all those things for which the head is the mediator. Their God spoke to them through dreams, which they understood were not ordinary dreams, but dreams steeped in reality. God spoke to them in clairvoyant moments, such as that in which he spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, and similar instances. If one asked the initiates of those ancient times how they imagined that those divine messages came to them, their reply was, The Lord, whose name is unutterable, speaks from out of his countenance. And the name they gave to the countenance of their God was Micaiah that spiritual power whom we count among the hierarchy of the archangeloi. They felt their God to be the one who remained unknown, beyond the visions, even of those who are clairvoyant. And when the clairvoyant raised himself up to his God through the state of his soul, the one who spoke to him was Michael. But this Michael spoke only to those who are able to bring themselves into a state of consciousness which differed from that of ordinary consciousness, a certain kind of clairvoyance through which that consciousness arose which otherwise only lives and moves in the human being between falling asleep and waking up, or through the will which remains in the unconscious and is asleep even when we are wide awake. So, in ancient Hebrew, the secret teaching of the Yahweh revelation was termed the revelation of the night. One felt revelation through Michael to be revelation of the night. On the one hand, people looked into the world through sensory perceptions and through human thinking and said, the knowledge and understanding which reaches the human being along this path does not yet contain the divine. But when... From this form of consciousness, they developed a different form of consciousness. They then found themselves addressed by the countenance of God, Michael, who revealed the true secrets which are connected with the human being. That which was then revealed to them built a bridge between the human being and those powers who cannot be perceived in the external world of the senses and cannot be comprehended with an understanding that is bound to the brain. We are therefore obliged to say, in pre-Christian times human beings lived in such a way that they were able to perceive sensory perceptions which gave them guidelines for their deeds on earth. But on the other hand, they would only have, but did not have, what was appropriate for ordinary consciousness, if they were to retain consciousness between falling asleep and waking up again. While one is awake, one is in the company of spiritual beings, and the people knew this. But these spiritual beings are not, as people supposed during the time of the Old Testament, those beings who created them, for those are in fact the Luciferic beings. The beings who were sensed to be created for humanity worked on the human being between falling asleep and waking up, or on those parts of the human being which also slept during the day. During Old Testament times, the god Yahweh was spoken of as the ruler of the night, and the servant of the ruler of the night, Yahweh's countenance, was Micaiah. And it was Michael who came to mind when one referred to all those prophetic inspirations through which more could be comprehended than through knowledge of the sense-perceptible world. And what consciousness is it that lies behind all this? Behind all this lies the consciousness that has grown out of the sphere of existence in which those beings who surround Yahweh are at work, while the creation of the human head is surrounded by Luciferic beings. A secret which was maintained through all the temples, and which was indeed very close to the truth, was that in protruding above the human organism, the human head was that part of the human being which was directed toward the Luciferic beings. In that the head protruded above the human organism, people knew Lucifer was protruding above the human organism. The power which has led the human head beyond its animalness and into its present form is a luciferic power. And the power which the human being should sense to be divine will have to stream up into the head out of the nighttime situation of the rest of the organism. This is what human beings were able to know during pre-Christian times. And then the mystery of Golgotha burst into earthly evolution. As we know, the mystery of Golgotha signifies a coming together of a supersensible being with earthly evolution through the body of Jesus of Nazareth. A coming together which, through the death on the Golgotha, brought about the uniting of the Christ being with the earthly human being. What did this bring about in earthly evolution? This is actually what brought meaningfulness into earthly evolution. The earth would have lacked meaningfulness if the human being had developed here with his intellect tied to his head, an intellect which was luciferic in origin and would thus have had to remain in a state of sleep in order to perceive the divine while looking at the external earthly world with a light of sun and stars shining upon it. The earth would never have become meaningful, because it is when he is awake that the human being belongs to it. A sleeping human being is not aware of his connection with the earth's existence. The Christ being lived in a human body, which had to pass through death. This gave the earth a jolt in its development, and through it everything in earthly evolution received new meaning. First of all, it became possible for the human being gradually to recognize his creative divine powers also during the daytime, in ordinary wakefulness, in his ordinary state of consciousness. The only reason why this is still misunderstood today is because insufficient time has as yet passed since the mystery of Golgotha for the human being to be able also in daytime consciousness to look into that world into which the prophets of the Old Testament were able to look in the days which they sensed to be permeated with the revelations of their ruler of the night, Yahweh, and his countenance, Michael. A time of transition has been necessary. During the course of the nineteenth century, The whole of oriental wisdom, although from an entirely different point of view, points to the importance of this process of the nineteenth century. The time began to arrive in which human beings must recognize that something has been fulfilled, something which has, hitherto, not been fulfilled. Namely that latent in them there now exists the ability to see through daytime revelation what was formerly only revealed during the night through Michael. This had to be preceded by a great error, a nighttime of knowledge. I have often said that I do not agree with those who maintain that our age is a period of transition. Of course, I know that every age is a period of transition, but I don't wish to come to a halt in such an abstract formulation for what is important is to explain what the transition is which is undergone during a certain period. The transition of our time is the following. Human beings must recognize that what was formerly only nighttime awareness must now come through daytime awareness. In other words, Michael was the one who revealed through the night and must now become the one who reveals during the day. Michael must be transformed from being a night spirit to being a day spirit. For him, the mystery of Golgotha signifies the transformation from being a night spirit to being a day spirit. But this understanding, which ought to be entering more rapidly than we can imagine into general human knowledge, is preceded by a still greater error, the greatest imaginable error, which has been possible in human evolution despite the fact that today, in many circles, it is still regarded as an especially important and essential truth. The origin of the human head has remained fully hidden from more recent humanity. The Luciferic spirituality linked with the human head has remained fully hidden. As I have said, the human being was seen as a unit, When questions were raised as to his origins, the answer given was that he is descended from the animals, whereas in reality only that part of the human being which is luciferic stems from the animals. That, however, through which formerly his divine creator spoke to him from out of his state of sleep, only arose, after the animals had come into being, as an addition to the human head everything connected with the human being has been lumped together so that one speaks of humans as being descended from the animals. This is something like a punishment of knowledge which has come upon humanity, although in my use of the word punishment here I'm giving the word a somewhat different interpretation. What might be the origin of the tendency to invent the idea that the human being is descended from the animals, whereas the true facts are, as already described in our depiction of the origins of the head and of the other parts of the organism. What has misled humanity to believe that the human being as a whole is descended from the animal realm? Well, in the stretch of time between the mystery of Golgotha and our era, a stretch of time which was in a sense also intended as a preparation for an understanding of the mystery of Golgotha, while the ancient heathen wisdom was gradually withdrawing owing to that endeavor to comprehend Christianity, the new comprehension of the spirit had not yet fully developed. And thus the Aramonic element gradually insinuated itself into human evolution. And because one had failed to recognize the luciferic element in the human head, so had one also failed to recognize, in the other parts of the human organism, the aramonic element, with which the divine element does battle. Thus the purely aramonic invention arose of the human being stemming from the animal succession. That the human being stems from the animal succession is an aramonic inspiration. Such knowledge is purely aramonic in character. The wisdom showing the human head as a luciferic formation became obscured. This led to the error which stated that the human being stemmed from the animal succession. Because people no longer rightly comprehended the origins of the human head, they could also no longer comprehend the other side of the matter. This is how the error crept in of believing that the human being as a whole was descended from the animal kingdom. And this is also how, in more recent civilization, a whole worldview has arisen in which the human head is regarded as the noblest element, with the other parts of the human being beside it just as good and evil or heaven and hell are juxtaposed in the world, a duality instead of a trinity. What should in truth have been known is that the human being initially owes his head to the wisdom of the world, to the Luciferic wisdom of the world, and that this Luciferic wisdom must gradually become imbued by other elements as well. Once human evolution has passed through the Saturn, Sun, and Moon evolutions, and reached the beginning of Earth evolution, the spiritual power which brings the Luciferic element into the human head is the Michael power. And he threw his opposing spirits down onto the earth. This means, because of this throwing down of the Luciferic spirits, the spirits. Who were in opposition to Michael, the human being became imbued with reason, with that which comes into being out of the head. Thus it was Michael who sent his opponents to the human being so that by taking in this opposing, this luciferic element, the human being might receive his reason. And then the mystery of Golgotha entered into human evolution. The Christ being passed through the death of Jesus of Nazareth. The Christ being united himself with human evolution. The era of preparation has now passed. In the supersensible world, Michael himself participated in the events of the mystery of Golgotha. Since the final third of the 19th century, Michael has occupied a very special place within human evolution the first thing that should come about through a proper understanding of the human being's relationship with Michael is that we begin to comprehend those secrets which are revealed, for example, in the situation of the human head and its relationship with the other parts of the human organism. It is essential for us to realize that because of our lack of comprehension regarding the true origin of the human head, we have fallen into error with regard to the origin of the human being as a totality. Through not wishing to understand that a luciferic formation has come about in the human head, human beings succumbed to the illusion that what belonged to the human head could be attributed to the same origin as that of the other parts of the human being. Humanity must now come to grips with these mysteries. Human beings must become able, boldly and bravely, to face up to the knowledge that they have to improve their comprehension of divine mysteries which are new to them concerning their understanding of the head and their purely earthly wisdom or intelligence. And the first thing must be a correction of the great error inherent in the materialistic interpretation of evolutionary doctrine, which states that the human being as a whole stems from the animal succession. This will be the only path we can follow in order to see in the human being, as he stands before us, not, on the one hand, something purely of the spirit and soul living in a body, with, on the other hand, something that is purely bodily, without any soul. No, we must look at something concretely spiritual, which is, however, working in a luciferic manner in the human head, while there is also at work in the human being, apart from the head, an opponent who is aramonic in nature. Speaking in imaginations... We may point backward to how the Luciferic was incorporated into the human being through the Michaelic impulse. But now, through that which Michael has become, the human being must be deprived of the Aramonic aspect. We are presented today by our external science, with a human being who, in view of anatomy and physiology, or what our external senses observe, is presumed to be a reality. We must, though, now become capable of perceiving the human being in such a way that with every fiber we see in him what is spiritual, what is concretely spiritual, as well as belonging to the body. We must come to realize that the blood running in the living human being is not the blood which might drip away, for this blood is filled with spirit in a special way. We must come to know this spirit which pulses through our blood. We must come to know the spirit which pulses through our nervous system, when that nervous system is in a dying phase, and so on. We must come to see the spiritual element in every single expression of what is living. Michael is the spirit of strength. In entering into human evolution, he must empower our capacity to see not, on the one hand, an abstract spirituality, and, on the other, what consists of matter which we can thump and cut up and of which we do not realize that it is, in fact, only an external manifestation of what is spiritual. Michael must permeate us as that strong power which is able to see through matter by seeing within it both what is material and what is spiritual, so that the spiritual is everywhere seen in what is material. During an ancient phase of human consciousness, it was said, In that ancient phase the word was spirit, but now it became flesh and lived among us, as expressed by the evangelist the Word united with the flesh, and this was preceded by the Michael revelation. All these things are processes within human consciousness. It is now time for the reverse process to begin, which consists in adding other words to those of the evangelist. A force must begin within our consciousness, which will enable us to see how the human being absorbs that which comes from spiritual worlds through the Christ impulse, that which must unite itself with humanity, so that humanity need not perish when the earth perishes. We must be able to see how the human being absorbs the spirit not only in his head but in his whole being, so that he becomes entirely permeated by the spirit. The Christ impulse alone can assist us in this. And for this to happen, the interpretation of the Christ impulse by the Michael impulse must help. Then we shall be able to add to the words of the evangelist, and the time must come when the flesh once more becomes the Word and learns to dwell in the realm of the Word. When we read at the end of the Gospels that, quote, there are also many other things, close quote, this is not an invention by some later author. It refers, rather, to what can only be revealed to humanity piece by piece. Those who regard the Gospels as a finished work, never to be altered, do not understand them correctly. They must be interpreted according to the words of Christ Jesus. I am with you always even unto the end of the world. What this means is, I have revealed myself to you not only in the days when the Gospels were being written. Through my day spirit, Michael, I shall always speak to you when you seek to find me. You will be permitted to add to the Gospels through the continuing revelations of Christ, not only those of the first millennium, but also those of the second millennium and in subsequent millennia. There will always be more to add. However truthfully the Gospels may speak, quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and lived among us. Close quote. However true this may be, it is also equally true that we must add the revelation, and the flesh of man must become permeated by spirit, so that it may be capable of living in the kingdom of the Word, and of beholding the divine mysteries. That the Word becomes flesh is the first Michael revelation. That the flesh becomes spirit must be the second Michael revelation. The end of Lecture 2